Our reading this morning is from Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to read the whole chapter. So uh, and before we do that, let's again bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word once again and ask you to help us to concentrate and to focus on it and to learn great things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember in chapter 14, Abraham has rescued Lot, and he's been met by Melchizedek at the end of chapter 14. And then in, verse, in chapter 15, Moses tells us, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we're in this section of Genesis where we're following Abram. And we're seeing how God is at work in his life and how Abram relates to God in the midst of it. 
We began in chapter 12 seeing how the Lord, as it were, plucked Abram out of nowhere and, uh, and chose him to be the recipient of his promises, God's promises. Uh, promises that would give Abram offspring, land, and that he and his offspring would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And we have seen how those promises have been repeated. Uh, we've also seen how, how uh, already that Abraham has had his low points. Uh, you remember in chapter 13 he forgot, uh, 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 he forgot God and he kind of descended into, into deception and put his wife in great danger uh, as he claimed that she was his sister. Uh, and Pharaoh takes her as his wife, and uh, he's already, she's already married to Abram. And eventually Abram finds out and, and sends him out. But under the blessing of God, I think, in the providence of God, Abram ends up a very wealthy man. He, he's able to leave with flocks and herds and gold and silver uh, and all sorts. So, the, But that was one of the low points. And then the high point is, was the last chapter we looked at, 14, where Abram... Uh, uh, goes to rescue Lot, who's been captured by Kedarlaomer and uh, uh, some other kings. And uh, we saw there how Abram trusted God and uh, went to save his, his nephew, somebody who is heavenly minded now, but he's of great earthly use. To be heavenly minded is to be of great earthly use. The people that are of no earthly use are usually not heavenly minded at all. And uh, so Abram is a, a great picture for us. And now we come to chapter 15. And as it were, the, the picture zooms in again uh, to Abraham. And we see a, a, a very intimate and personal encounter that Abraham has with God. And it comes, I think, clearly when Abraham has something on his mind. The fact that he has no children is a big issue for him. He says in verse 2, I continue childless. He thinks about the promises of God and how he is going to have offspring and how they're going to be a blessing to the nations. And he thinks to himself, but hang on a minute, I haven't got any children. Where are the children going to come from? And uh, Sarah is, is, is barren. She's beyond childbearing age, normally. And we get this sense of, of personal sadness in Abram. Perhaps a little anxiety in him. Now, Abram will, of course, have remembered the promises made in chapter 13. Uh, if you look back to 13, verses 15 and 16, uh, God had said... All the land that you see I will give you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. But the question for Abraham is, when is this going to happen? And how is this going to happen? He has no idea. And so in this chapter we find that once more, the promises of God are further developed. And in it we see two things, two, two important issues, and we're going to 
a two-point sermon. I hope you believe that. Two points. The first is that faith, having faith, or believing God, or trusting in God, is the central experience of the Christian life. And the second thing is that God not only makes promises, but he makes them in the form of covenant with Abram and his offspring. And we'll see what that means later. So faith is a central experience of the, of the, uh, the child of God, and God makes covenant with his children. We'll see what that means in a moment. So this divides into roughly two sections. The first six verses deal with this question of Abram's faith. And verses 7 to 21 uh, deal with this question of God's covenant. And, and, and at the center of it is the question of the land. So first of all, faith as the central experience of God's people. Uh, the setting here is, is at night, is, is at night, and Abraham's in his tent. He must be inside. Because in verse 5, he'll be asked to go outside and look at the stars. So it's nighttime, he's in his tent. And, uh, and it's in this setting that God comes to him with a vision, in a vision. And we're not told what he saw in the vision. Actually, what he saw is not the most important thing. The vital, the thing of vital importance is the word that God comes to him with. And you find this in verse 1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So there's a command first, fear not, followed by a promise. Fear not. Perhaps necessary for Abram, because he's full of anxiety, thinking about the future, not sure how things are going to work out. Maybe he's fearful because this vision has come upon him. I mean, when, when a vision comes upon you, um, you, you have to figure out what's going on, and you have no idea, perhaps. You're full of fear. Imagine all the times when God has appeared to his people, and the first words out of, uh, from the messenger of God, or the angel of the Lord, is fear not. He puts his people at rest when he comes to them. And then it's followed by this twofold promise. Uh, the first part is about his relationship to Abram. I am your shield. And the second is about the blessings of that relationship. Your reward shall be very great. So, relationship, I am your shield. The blessings of that relationship, your reward shall be very great. And it's a great promise, isn't it? I am your shield. I am your protection. I am your guard. You can hide behind me in the face of your enemies. You can depend on me. So fear not. Don't worry about a thing. I think there's a song about that. (laughs) But it's not based on anything, the song. But this is based on something. It's based on God. That sentiment of the Lord being your shield is found in all kinds of places in the Old Testament. So we sang one earlier, Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. God is a shield. Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. 
Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So, uh, just a few examples. Time and time, time again, God comes to his people and he says, I am a shield to you. And his people respond, you're a shield and I will go to you and find refuge in you. And the fact that it's spread out across the whole of the Bible tells us that this promise that God gives to Abraham is actually for all of God's people. Fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now this, the central point I, th- I think that God is making here is not that he, he gives you a shield and goes off and does something else. What he's saying is, I am your shield. He himself is your shield. Now, it's important to stress that because sometimes as Christian people, we, we separate God from his benefits. And we say to God, well, thank you very much for all these benefits. And you go off and you forget God. I've got all these benefits. I've got eternal life in my back pocket. I don't need to worry about anything else. And I forget God. We separate God from his benefits, from Christ from his benefits. But God is saying here to Abraham and to us, when you have me, you have everything you need. When you have me, you have everything you need. And then he goes on to say, your reward shall be great. And the reward is found in God himself. It's a great mistake to think that we can have the benefits of eternal life without the God of eternal life. And it tells us something very important about what God desires for his people throughout the ages, even today. That where his people are, uh, where his people are looking for, uh, not simply for the fulfillment of promises and personal benefits to come, but looking to God for all of these things. You see, this is what true faith looks like. Faith looks to God. And it's always got God in the center. It's always got Christ in the center. And the challenge to us is always this question. Is God enough for you? Or are you looking for something else? Are you looking for the gifts that he gives rather than God himself? Is God enough? Very important question. And it's really important, especially when you still haven't seen all the promises fulfilled. We, we look for, forward to the promises being fulfilled, don't we? Jesus Christ will come again, and we will enter into his glory. Meanwhile, Christ will build his church. Just a couple of the promises. God will bring his people to, to completion, all the work that he started in his people. He'll bring it all to completion, but that's still to be fulfilled. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to continue to look to God as he holds out those promises to us? Now there's no doubt here, I think, that Abraham continues to believe God, but there are still questions, and there are still serious ones in Abraham's mind. Uh, Sarah is barren. Uh, She has no earthly prospect of having children. Yet Abraham has this promise of offspring that will ultimately be more numerous than the dust of the earth. 
So there's a tension here. And I think the, the thrust of verses 2 and 3 is, Lord, I believe you, but the way things are going, my servant is due to inherit what I've, I've got. And inherit the promises. And that's a custom, I think, that Abraham inherited from Haran, where he was, he was living with his father before he died. You, you know, if you don't have a son, or a, a, if you don't have offspring to give all your worldly wealth to, then you give it to your, a, a trusted servant. And Eliezer is this trusted servant. So the thing that Abraham is suffering from is not an absence of faith so much, it's an absence of assurance. You know, it's possible to have faith in the midst of all kinds of adverse circumstances, but have that assurance of faith shaken. We believe God, but we're just not quite sure how things are going to work out. And our assurance takes a hit. Think of the man in Mark chapter 9 who came to Jesus about his son who had an unclean spirit and was being regularly thrown into fits. And it was a terrible trial for him. He had to endure a terrible social stigma, I think, in very difficult circumstances. And he cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He believes in Jesus, but he's not sure about Jesus. He's not sure it's going to work out. I think this is Abraham here. He's believing God, but he's not sure. Know how the Lord is compassionate with Abram. God, as it were, kind of takes him by the hand and takes him outside in this vision. He takes him outside of his tent and he shows him the stars and he says, count them. You ever tried to count the stars? <laughs> it's one of these funny things. The longer you look, the more stars you see. And if you're in the countryside, you see billions of them. They're in principle, mathematically, they're countable. But in practice, they're not, it's not possible, is it? And it's in this that God gives Abraham the assurance of his promises of offspring too many to count. And that's enough for, for Abraham. It wasn't a proof. It was only an illustration, the stars in the sky. But it was enough for God to just point to something to back up his words. And Abraham took confidence from it. And so he trusted God's word. Friends, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to be reading scripture to each other. Whether we're in a gathering like this, or with friends, or even meditating on the truth by yourself, that the reading of Scripture is God's Word coming to us, and God uses it to give us assurance of the things that matter. People don't read their Bibles are often all at sea in terms of their assurance. Because they don't know what God says, and they're not really paying attention. They're too busy flailing around trying to make sense of the world. So hearing the promises of God can be a marvelous help to us in believing and trusting. And then we come to this marvelous verse in verse 6 where he says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
It's actually a vital verse uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's used three. It's picked up three times by Paul in Romans and Galatians and James chapter two. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice what the verse is saying: that Abraham's faith becomes the means by which he is considered to be righteous before God. He is considered to be acceptable before God. Now you see how important this is. People almost always left to themselves consider that they are right with God because they have done all the right things. They have been obedient. They have a good moral standard. And when God looks down upon you, he thinks of you as righteous because you're a good person. But this verse says, through the act of simply believing the promises of God, Abraham is counted as righteous. And notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that faith is another virtuous, meritorious work that earns you God's favor. As though you, that work of believing should be rewarded. But what he is saying is that when you believe God and his word, then God counts you as righteous. He counts righteousness to you. He reckons it to you. He imputes it to you. And this is true as much in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. That's what Paul argues in Romans chapter 4. When he's talking about faith and the centrality of faith and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he pulls out Abraham and Abraham's faith and he quotes this verse. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, the benefits of God's saving grace come through believing the Lord and trusting in him. And that brings to the fore, I think, what righteousness in the Bible really is. It isn't a lot of good works which someone keeps an account of. Although, of course, genuine faith always issues in good works. But it's not the good works that makes you righteous. It's the faith. Living faith is a living faith. As James 2 says, it always leads to works. But it's not the works that get you your righteousness. But righteousness, true righteousness, is being in the kind of relationship to God in which your primary experience is that of believing and trusting what God has promised. So faith is that central experience of the child of God, of the Christian. Let me move on to the second section. And the main main point is this, that God's covenant promise is the central foundation upon which his people stand. God's covenant promise is the central foundation on which his people stand. Now the immediate focus here is on the land and the promise of land. Uh, God has promised Abraham a land in chapters 12 and 13. Uh, And in a similar pattern to verses 1 to 6, it begins with God making a promise. And again, again, it consists of a statement about himself. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land 
to possess. And once more, the, the, the statement brings a question from Abram in verse 8. But Lord, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So there's faith there, but he wants more certainty. He wants to be assured of this. He wants, how am I, he wants the answer. How am I to know that this is true? And in answer to that, God works this rather strange ritual that uh, is very strange to us. But actually makes a lot of sense in the ancient Near East at the time. And we'll explain why in a minute. But notice, as, as God goes on, before we get to the ritual, notice as God goes on how he promises how the receipt of the land is going to, is going to be fulfilled. In verses 13 to 16, he shows that Abraham himself is never going to see the land. It's actually going to take 400 years for his offspring to be in captivity before finally they are released and come back to the promised land. So here's an advance warning several hundred years before Moses of the captivity of the Israelites and then the great exodus to the promised land. And Abraham will die before, therefore will die before he sees any of this. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back in the fourth generation. Now, at that time, a generation, think of how long Abraham and Moses lived. It's a hundred years and a generation, I think here really means a whole lifespan. So four lifespans, hundred years, four hundred years. But something will happen. First, uh, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And that's, uh, of course, the Israelites in in Egypt. And there is a a reason given for the 400-year delay, which is rather strange to us. Uh, They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete complete. The Amorites are inhabitants of Canaan at this time, um, and it tells us something about how God's judgment works. That the Amorites have not lived the full length of their sinful lives yet, but God is patient and he's waiting, but the time for judgment will come, but that's all in God's hands, and God knows when that judgment's going to come. And so God has a bigger purpose that he's working out that Abram can't see at the moment. But judgment is going to come. And that judgment falls temporarily under Joshua against the Amorites. Well, what does this all tell us? Well, it does tell us that God's timescales for his promises are much greater than ours, far beyond the extent of our lives. That God promises things and it takes a long time for him to, to do it. But his promises are nonetheless true. And therefore, we need to learn to be patient with God. But the second thing is, God is active in history, weaving a number of things together, each in its own times, both promises and judgments, and all according to his perfect will and purpose. So we need to see God at work all the time, doing all the things that he needs to do to fulfill all his will and purpose. 
It's true for us today. We need to trust in his promises, but we need to remember that God is continually active doing all kinds of things uh, besides. And for us, the waiting may cause us to question him. It may cause us to get tense. But we need to understand from passages like this that God is doing what he needs to do. He's doing it perfectly exactly when he intends to do it, and it is the good and right thing to do. And so we just need to trust him. Well, let's look at this ritual then. And in verse 9, Abraham is told, bring me a heifer, three years old, uh, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And as I said, this is is actually quite a common way for kings in the ancient Near East to enter into a treaty or a covenant. Uh, The kings would would cut the, the animals in two and lay them out. And then the two parties to the covenant would would walk through the, the split animals. And it was a, an, an, an acting out, if you like, a commitment of the two parties to say, uh, I commit myself to my, to my death to keep this covenant. You know, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, then may my life be like the, the lives of those animals, cut in two and destroyed. And so it's a commitment of kings to, to each other. So this is what happens with Abraham. And the animals are laid out in verses 9 and 10. And then what happens? Well, actually, Abraham falls asleep. He falls into a deep darkness. And in this sleepy state, something uh, in, chapter, in verse 17, something interesting happens. This a smoking fire pot appears in the vision, in his dream. And a flaming torch appears. And it then passes between the animals that he has cut earlier. Now what is this? What's going on here? Now whenever you see fire... It should immediately think, is this God? And the answer is yes. Think of the the burning bush. Think of the pillar of fire leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Think of how God comes in, in fire at Pentecost. God comes in fire. And so in this vision, this flaming fire port and this torch is a, a, a picture of God, a theophany of God in the vision. It's like God is present. And what does God do? He walks between the the broken animals. And here's the interesting thing. God does it alone. He doesn't do it with Abraham. God does it alone. And what that indicates to us is God pledges himself to keep covenant with Abraham. So that as he passes through those animal halves, he is saying, may I die like these animals if I do not keep my covenant with you. So that's the first thing. God pledges himself. But then secondly, he takes upon himself uh, the burden of the covenant promise for Abraham. 
doesn't ask Abram to join him. He makes no demand of Abram except to believe the promises that he makes. This is an unconditional promise and covenant. And God pledges himself to bear the burden of keeping that covenant. Friends, this is really the foundational covenant upon which the whole covenant of grace is founded. All the way from Abraham, Moses, David's new covenant. And you can trace that. That's how you can trace that covenant of grace. By seeing the different administrations of it. Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, new covenant. And all the way through, God promises to bear the burden of the covenant for his people, taking away their sins. And as the covenant unfolds, we see that indeed God does bear the burden. Now, of course, God in himself, in his divine nature, cannot die. God cannot cease to exist. He's God. He cannot be killed and he cannot kill himself. God cannot die. So was that an empty promise that God made to Abraham? May I die like these animals if I don't keep my covenant promise? Well, no. What God can do is he can come into this world like, an, like Abraham. As a man, he can take upon himself human nature. He can become just like us. And as the God-man in his son, he can bear the sins of his people. He can bear the covenant obligations for his people in order that the penalty for all of their sin and the power of sin that controls them and the result of sin, which is death, can be removed from them. And God can keep his promises to his people. We know that we cannot bear the penalty of sin and live. And God knows that too. If Abraham had been made to walk between the animals, he would have no answer for his sin and failure. He would bear the punishment. Instead, God did it alone. And he looked forward to the day when the seed of Abraham would come and he would bear the sins of his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is, shows us just how amazing our God is, how amazing the gospel is, how amazing his grace is, how kind and loving he is to his people. And all he asks for us, from us is that we believe his promises and trust him, and leave the rest to him. It almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it, the gospel? It is good, and it's true. Rest in his promises, and let's see what he will do as we follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful picture that Abraham uh, lays before us. And Moses lays before us in the life of Abraham the wonderful covenant promises. Lord, we praise you that you have made these promises and you have fulfilled them in Jesus Christ. And we pray you'd help us to trust you and to follow him with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.